This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and my guest today is Magdalena Kala, or Mags as she's better known. Mags has an incredible backstory, which involves immigrating from Poland on her own to attend boarding school in the United States, admission to Harvard and Stanford, working for Bain Capital, and even running a notorious female blackjack ring. She is now the founder of Double Down, an early stage investor focused on Web3 companies. We discussed her story, how she learned to invest in the consumer space, and why people like the owner of the Boston Celtics trust her with their capital. Please enjoy my conversation with Max. Max, thanks for joining us today. Really excited to have you. So excited to be here. Thank you. When you look at someone's resume and you read it, people usually go in reverse chronological order. What are you doing now? What did you do before that? And if I just got your resume on my desk, it would say, just launched my own venture capital fund, previously at Bain Capital, before that Stanford Graduate Business School, before that Harvard undergrad, before that private school. Maybe it's a chip on the shoulder I have or like where I grew up, but I'd be like, this is a rich, spoiled kid who just got everything rolled out in front of them. And your story could not be further from that based on how successful you've been. I know you're humble about it and you're like talking about it all the time, but I'd love for you to share where you started, your upbringing, how you came to the United States and how all this crazy success happened. It is funny. I feel like I rocked everyone with my background. I grew up in a small town in southern Poland, population 2000, super small, first generation college. My parents don't speak a word of English. And I was a weird kid. In fact, my brothers actually always called me the black sheep of the family. They felt like I felt like I wanted too much out of life. And why am I so ambitious? And why do I want to do things? I think it was just part of understanding early on how the game was played. What are the centers of power? How things actually get done in the world? And who makes things happen? And that's what I wanted to be. Like when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be in the rooms where shit happens. And everything else just unrolled from that. One of the first things I diligenced as a teenager in Poland was, okay, top schools, top universities in the US, I have to get into Harvard. In order to get into Harvard, I discovered there's this thing called boarding schools. So I cold emailed every single boarding school in the US asking for a scholarship. I lucked out and out of the almost 300 emails that I sent, one school ended up giving me a full ride, Mercedesburg Academy in Pennsylvania. So I moved to Pennsylvania and the rest unrolled from there, worked hard, got into Harvard, didn't know what to do with myself, but private equity sounded like a great place to learn and make money and meet a lot of influential people. So I went to private equity and then I fell in love with investing and could not ever see doing anything else with my career. If I asked your brothers where your ambition came from, if you think back, like I am curious, you have a tremendous amount of drive and I'm always fascinated where that lives inside people. Where do you think that came from? I think it came from my mom's love of reading that she passed on to me. So I devoured books growing up, read a book a day. And at the same time, I also watched a lot of news with my dad and would kind of debate political topics and news and economics from the early time. And so I had this curiosity about the world, but also for whatever reason, I never felt much of a sense of inferiority or imposter syndrome or anything like that. It always felt like if people are out there doing things, like why couldn't I be one of those people? And so that just was the starting element. Like there is this big world out there with a lot of interesting people doing interesting things. And I just want to be part of that. And as a Polish kid, what was your exposure to like the United States or were there friends that had ever gone to boarding school or was this completely alien to the town you grew up in? Completely alien to the town I grew up in. And in fact, I met all of the early network that showed me that that was possible online. The early online forums, 
other ambitious kids in Poland talking online together, how you can get to good schools, how you can get to a boarding school, stuff like that. So I discovered that community and that helped me figure out how to do this. How did your parents respond? Did you have to negotiate to get the agreement to do this? I mean, sending their daughter across the ocean to a country they've never been to, a language they don't speak. I mean, maybe they were all about it, but I can imagine maybe that wasn't the case. So I didn't exactly tell them at the beginning. One of the first steps was I actually wanted to go to an English language high school in Poland, and that was 300 miles away from our hometown. And my mother said that it was too far. So I knew how she was going to feel about the United States, a completely foreign country, continent, and across the ocean. So I didn't tell them at the time when I sent the emails. The odds were low. Why bother right now? It's not worth it. And only when I got in and got a full ride, I sat my parents down and told them that we can do it the easy way or the hard way, but I'm going to move to the United States next year. How old were you when you moved to the US? Uh, 16. Were you speaking English fluently at that point? So I came up through a, I would call the more Soviet style education system, the 90s in Poland, and it's a lot of memorization not a lot of speaking and listening. So my written and my reading skills were really good. Speaking and listening comprehension, not exactly great. So another rock pool number two, I showed up to Mercersburg Academy and how I write and how I speak didn't exactly match. (laughs) So that was quite a journey in the first year, but we had a great English as a second language program and went from there. But it was quite miserable for me in the first year if only because I'm a very opinionated person and I had all these ideas and I couldn't exactly express them the way I wanted to. And then so sitting in my English literature classes and just like boiling inside because I can't express what I want to express. How hard was the transition to this country? It was hard because I didn't have the cultural context. And I think language is one thing. And obviously, I was still working on that but I didn't know any of the cultural references, any of the slang, any of the pop culture that all my classmates were talking about. I think that was actually the hardest part. It wasn't necessarily being far away from my family or being on my own or any of those aspects. It was more just feeling like an outsider and feeling double weird, both as a foreigner and not culturally up to speed, but also being this like super driven kid who now had like a next step on the journey, it was like I had to get into a top college because, again, those were the only ones that gave full rights to internationals. Most schools in the U.S., universities are U.S. citizens, financial aid only. So I had a very short list of universities that I could feasibly go to because they would offer me a full scholarship. And so it was eyes on the prize. It was basically like Ivy League or Stanford or nothing. And so It was the double challenge of the cultural aspect. And then I am just trying to play a different game than most people who have a lot of other fallback options. It's the second time you've mentioned it as a game, which I find interesting. It comes up a lot and resonates with me. But you felt like you figured out that the world was a game and you wanted to be in the room where the shit was happening. Now you're in high school and you're kind of looking at this extremely competitive educational landscape. English isn't your first language, but when you look back on it, What was your ability to realize a game was being played or how did you think about navigating it to get to what you wanted from, in this case, getting into school? I have no idea. I generally don't know where that initial spark came from. I always consider myself very self-aware and always hyper-analyzing myself and the world around me. So I think it was just part of like figuring out the pieces of the puzzle. But where that interest came from, no idea. It was more just... I could tell that things were happening in a certain way. And it was fun. It was a challenge to crack the game and crack how you can level up in an interesting way. And then I think the one thing that is very unique, I think, to how I approach things versus a lot of other type A people, I was never afraid to ask for help. And I was never afraid to ask for what I want. So when I look at a lot of my peers said, I think the high achievers generally are scared to ask for help or want to do everything on their own. And I knew that I was coming from behind and didn't have support networks. So I had to create them myself. And then similarly, I think a lot of women in business end up being more timid, I would say, if I can generalize here on my own gender. And I never had that in me. I grew up with two older half-brothers and uh, dad who loved to debate. And so like, if I didn't ask for what I wanted, if I didn't express my opinion, I would just get completely drowned out at the dinner table. So again, that kind of helped me be vocal and kind of ask for what I want. 
How do you think that failure plays into that? I think that you're right. Smart people sometimes don't want to ask for help because they want to prove they can do it themselves. But I also find that there's this risk averseness of smart people that they don't want to look stupid. They don't want to fall on their face. They don't want to tell anyone they're going to Harvard because if they don't get in, then they'll be devastated, even though inside they have the same fire that they wanted as bad as you. But how do you handle failure after asking and being so blunt, I guess, is not the right word, but how direct you can be? Oh, I'm very blunt. I am very blunt and direct. And my founders know that and everyone knows that, that I work with. So I think there's two elements to it. One is just attitude toward risk and one is attitude toward failure. And they're actually two very different things. So on the risk side, when you have nothing to lose, like I did kind of growing up in Poland, you have an extreme risk-taking mindset. If you are not scared, you will take all the risks because there is nothing to lose. And so that's what kind of the first step of my life, just trying to make something happen. Once I got to Mercersburg, I actually developed this crazy risk aversion because I was now part of the system that could push me up, but I had to do everything right. It's competitive and this and that. And so I took no risks whatsoever in high school. I did all the right activities. I picked the classes that I knew I could do amazingly well. And I basically never stretched myself. It was like, what can I absolutely crush? to have this perfect resume to get into college. And then in college, I got into Harvard, yay. I had no idea what to do with myself. Again, one of those moments was like my entire life up to this point was about getting to this point. What do I do now? And so I went through a lot of kind of self-exploration and discovery. And in the most hilarious stories of all time for me, I discovered that through Blackjack. I started a Blackjack team with a few people and a professor at Harvard. And that helped me rediscover the smart risk-taking and how you have to take the risks to get the reward, but you have to take smart risks. And how do you think about the risk versus reward equation? And that kind of helped me rediscover that. The failure aspect of things is always interesting because I think there's the fatal failures that in high school, it felt like a lot of things, if I didn't do it right, just one thing could absolutely kill my chances. And so you don't take those. At the same time, for failures that will not be fatal, I always think of them as a lot of larger numbers. Email 300 schools. I don't care if I'm going to get 299 no's. I just need one yes. That's how I think about a lot of different things, even fundraising, whatever. Reaching out to people, asking for things. I will ask 100 people and even like five say yes and 95 are no's. That is still better than not asking at all because what are the odds? The first thing in order would be, because I know there's younger people that listen to this that are driven and want to be successful. And that point you made about how you got to where you're supposed to be, I think this is a common thing we would see where I used to work, where you were in high school students, you worked really hard, you got into a great undergrad program, then you became like a banker or you went to grad school and you got into this program. And then finally, when you leave the system, this is what I mean of like risk aversion is like you have to take the banking job, you have to take the private equity job because it's such a hard thing to get to. So stepping away from that is kind of crazy, which we'll get to. Before we do that, I got to go into Blackjack. You started a Blackjack club. This wasn't just a fun Blackjack club. Why don't you explain a little bit more of what you did with that? Yeah, so we had a group of mostly women. And there were times when we kind of had an all-female team and a professor. And we first just started learning the game. He was a former card counter and we got really good. And at the same time, it was very clear to everyone that there was a stereotype in Vegas that women were not card counters. The stereotype of card counter is an Asian male, nerdy looking, et cetera, et cetera. So we thought that there was a kind of an interesting social experiment to run. So we started by going to Vegas and seeing how that would work. Are we good enough at the card counting piece? Are we good enough at the social engineering piece? And turned out we were. So we had a pretty good run, three plus years, and I'm banned from all MGM properties in Vegas. So no more card counting for me. But it was never about the money-making aspect of it. A lot of people are like, well, why didn't you stay with that? One, it's not very scalable because if you're like 20-something and sitting down with like a few thousand dollars to gamble, people start asking questions. So I had a lot of different stories. I think part of my love of storytelling came from coming up with my different personas every time I sat down at the table. And then it's actually not the most pleasant of experiences. You're sitting in smoky places, drunk people, boring conversation. You're just like sitting there and it's a grind because once you know how to beat the game, you know how to beat the game. And then you're just like executing it. 
after a year or two, it didn't actually feel that challenging. But it was such a great lab in risk and how people make decisions and how to interact with folks and attitude toward money. I think the depersonalization of money, because it's just chips on a table, an interesting training ground for being an investor where money is money and it's LP's capital, but also you can have a personal attachment to it because you're not going to take the right risks. So a lot of fascinating life lessons and I'm so grateful for it. Did you meet anyone that you were like, wow, this person was really interesting and memorable? Probably one that I can mention. I had the most fascinating two-hour playing session at one casino with a bounty hunter. And I just learned everything there is to learn about bounty hunting. So you just got to meet people from all walks of life. That was just fascinating, right? Like heiresses of big businesses from Japan and bounty hunters and strippers and pro athletes. It just kind of was a mix of people, especially the high limit tables. It was just so fun and so different. And then I would uh, fly back on the red eye to Boston and work my library job for $10 an hour and go to classes, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. So you were basically doing a bringing down the house with a team of all women from Harvard when the guys were doing it at MIT. And with a better system, because bringing down the house was actually from like 90s. And casinos have implemented a lot of things to deter card counting, as it was described in that book and movie, and as it was practiced by the MIT team. So we had to have quite a few innovations there to actually make the edge worth it. And our edge was actually better than theirs. All right. So getting back on track with this crazy meandering career for you, you are at Harvard, you do card counting. Then you go to Bain. This kind of gets to that risk point of now you, as for Boston, people who live around here, I would say undergrad at Harvard, getting to Bain Capital, and then on Stanford's kind of a big deal. But the odds of ever leaving that ecosystem is kind of crazy, which obviously you end up doing. But tell me about your time there, what you learned. I want to get into consumer investing. I think it's an interesting field that most people probably have some misperceptions about. Talk about consumer investing, what you did. Showing up at Bank Capital, I had no idea what I wanted to do. Part of the reason why I took the job was because I knew I could learn a lot of things. I could learn a lot of things around the business. And I actually first started doing industrials investing. And it was, again, showing up as a 22-year-old to some plant in Indiana and talking with a bunch of middle-aged men about their production processes. Fascinating stuff. So I didn't exactly fall in love with the job immediately. And I actually, for a while, thought that investing was not for me because I just wasn't captivated by it. And then I kind of fell into a few consumer deals, being a woman helped there because in consumer investments, especially around beauty and apparel, the female perspective upon it is very valuable. But that was kind of like my first exposure to consumer investing. And I absolutely fell in love with that. I fell in love with analyzing consumer behavior, why people do what they do and buy what they buy, and how can you get conviction for the long-term hold? If you recall private equity business model, you're acquiring majority position, and you have four or five years before you exit. In four or five years, the world changes a lot. Consumer world changes a lot. New brands come and go. So how do you actually get conviction that the business is going to do well? So that was the one part. And another part of it is like how you do that. A lot of it is brand building. And I love that aspect of it too. It's kind of a storytelling plus business strategy plus this kind of consumer psychology piece that I absolutely fell in love with. I did learn a lot. I work with a really fabulously smart people, and then I'm super grateful for that experience. But over time, I kind of came to this realization that I am so deeply passionate about consumer and specifically kind of what is most innovative at consumer. And that happens just much earlier stage than when companies get to 200 million revenue and become of size to be interesting to a private equity firm. And at the same time, also, they tend to be at intersection of industries. It's not a very clean consumer only the way that you have consumer products. It's a lot of consumer innovation happens, consumer and gaming, consumer and media, consumer and Web3 right now. And so I wanted to have the ability to both go much earlier stage where the innovation was happening and be able to play at the intersection of these things in an interesting way. But it was a very surprising thing to leave the establishment, as we would call it. Well, get to leaving the establishment, I guess before we get there, help me understand at the later stage, like when you're looking at a consumer company, what are the things that are important to you? I think about brands like Canadian Goose Company and nobody was wearing these silly jackets. Now everyone's wearing these silly jackets. Will everyone be wearing these jackets in five years? 
it's like a really interesting point at that point. And then we're obviously where you are now, we'll go earlier, but I think it'd be fun to start a more mature brand, how you look at it. One of my most fascinating projects actually at Bain was we were looking at this brand that shall rename Nameless. I got a very specific question from my boss, figure out whether it's a fad before we are able to know whether it's a fad. And when you think about fads, you can't really call a fad ahead of time. I mean, a lot of people do, and then they look stupid, like calling internet a fad. But at the same time, there is a lot of fads out there. And so going through this exercise of how can you measure momentum and how you think about momentum and how sustainable brands got built over time versus not, you just develop these mental models over time, some data-driven, very quantitative data-driven, and some more qualitative behavior and kind of brand building models. The two things that I think about a lot, one is why people love a particular brand, because you can love it for functional reasons, practical reasons. You can love it for emotional reasons, and you can love it for social hypey reasons. And they have different stickiness associated with each. So kind of a good example, it is the warmest jacket you can get. There's actually no question about that. People wear them on expeditions to the Arctic Pole and whatnot. There is no warmer jacket. And if you think of like the aspirational branding you can then build around that, if you are living in like Boston or New York or anywhere, you want the warmest jacket. So there is stickiness to it that someone cannot just come in and compete on it in the same way that they would if it was just a fashionable jacket that everyone wants. You don't really care that everyone else has a kind of the goods. You just care that you're warm. So that's like one aspect of it. Where the other one is I think a lot about how the brand actually gets built because there's a lot of what I would call GMO brands. They grew up very quickly, pumped off artificial ingredients, namely paid media. And there is a certain gestation period to brand development. And if you don't have that, it's very hard to have sticking power because you didn't have time to develop your brand identity and relationship with customers and legacy and loyalty and all the different things that actually make for this foundation that you get to like build from. A lot of brands will grow really fast and then they don't know what to do with themselves. The faster you grow, the faster you will probably decline. And then the slow heritage growth brands usually have a long sticking power to them. The stickiness thing got me. And I guess I was curious about whether it's a jacket or like the overconstructed cooler like Yeti or something where clearly it's practical. So it does something. It's almost impractical in its nature. Nobody wearing a Canada Goose jacket in Boston or New York is summoning Everest anytime soon. It's probably the most opposite group. Anyone using a Yeti cooler is most likely not fishing and people wearing Patagonia are not summoning Everest either. Like there's an interesting thing to me when it comes to brand of what it comes to represent versus who wears it. I almost find it sometimes like deeply ironic that it's less about the practicality and more about that brand. So in your opinion of those three levers you kind of laid out, which one leads to the most stickiness? I mean, I don't know if those are the specific three levers, but stickiness is a function of many different elements. So the function, the superior quality of something is one aspect. And it can be the warmest jacket. It can just be quality of materials. It can be the premium experience of a more experience-driven brand. There's a lot of aspects to it, but like quality is generally one dimension. If you have a high-quality brand, it's much harder to kill it than good enough products with amazing brand on top of it. So that's one aspect. I think the other aspect is this emotional attachment to it, if you will, but intrinsic. What does it say about me? What type of person I want to like portray? So it ends up being very identity and self-expression driven. And that is connected to what I would say is like a third aspect, which is this extrinsic signaling factor. Other people are wearing this and I want to be like them, the aspiration. Or I want to be part of this group and like being in that in-group is associated with buying certain products and buying certain brands. And so I would say like those are actually like how I think about the three elements of how brands get built. I don't know if I can tell you which is the stickiest 100% of the time, but in general, the quality usually tends to stick unless someone comes up with something much better. But even then, it has to be much better, right? It's the whole 10x rule because people get used to stuff. And the intrinsic thing is more at the mercy of external factors. Because if I wear brand X, but brand X has done a bunch of things I don't like, that loyalty can go in an instant. And then the social element is the group dynamics. Trends come and go. 
I find it hilarious that Gen Zs are kind of going through all the trends from the 90s and whatnot. Groups generally develop their trends. And that is a slower cycle, but it's almost persistent cycle. Like, you know, that cycle is eventually going to come and go. And so you're also trying to fit a brand and fit its vibe around that larger macro cycle of consumer trends. The gestation comment you made, I absolutely love that the brands that use GMOs, it's an awesome mags take. If I had a brand or you showed up and they got a chance to work with you, do you have a hot product and they're talking about they can go down the path of use GMOs or they can follow mags organic diet of this, how you're supposed to do it. What are the first steps and that organic, how it should work to get those longer lasting brands? So if you have an amazing product, the first thing is always for me, the first question is, who is your target customer? Like, not really, like, who is the bullseye of your target customer? And do you really actually know who that is? It's not who you want it to be, but who is actually buying your product today? And then how do you target more of those people? That is a very simple framework. Who is your target customer and where do they hang out? Because a lot of paid media and kind of this GMO pumping VC dollars to get social media marketing and discounts and whatnot actually comes from this very top-down marketing approach of like, let's just like blast it out to a bunch of people and like see what happens. And like, yeah, you can target, but like not really. So I like to think through that lens. And then once you know exactly who your target customer is, I am big on customer acquisition arbitrage opportunities. Where can you find an interesting way of getting in front of people that are your target customer as cheaply as possible? So it is a very different framework because a lot of traditional growth marketers are going to go to the exercise of this is my CAC, this is my LTV, therefore I can like afford even more CAC and so let's just keep spending. And I like to think of it from, okay, what is the cheapest possible way I can get as many of my target people as possible? And then only on the margins, you're going through, okay, like now I have an extra budget. How do I also spend it to accelerate growth? So I talk a lot with my founders about who is your target customer, product or tech or whatever. And then how can you get in front of those customers efficiently? And it kind of runs counter to a lot of Web3 where it's like, oh, Twitter. Like, no, a lot of people's target customers are not actually on Twitter. So like, let's talk about where do you find them? How do you talk to them? All the fun stuff associated with that go-to-market strategy that's a little bit more thoughtful than just Twitter plus Discord. What's an example of the cheapest CAC arbitrage that you found that's kind of a fun story? I think in general, people are underrating partnerships, but partnerships done the right way where both parties benefit and both parties are doing cross-marketing to their respective users. Those are super interesting to me. And I mean, we've seen some of those even in the Web3 space. There's a reason why when Adidas was doing something, they ended up doing it in partnership with Bored Apes and why Nike actually, let's partnership, decided to acquire Artifact because both parties had something to benefit from the other, whether it was for Bored Apes getting in front of a mass market, for Adidas to get that, Web3 authenticity associated with that partnership. But partnerships are underrated as that's probably a big one. I think the storytelling space that different channels have is also underrated. So if you think of something like social media ads, it's very hard to have a lot of room to explain what you're trying to do and why and why it matters. But if things like paid content with Twitch influencers or paid long-form content in newsletters and media or sponsored videos or TikToks even, right? Like there is a lot more storytelling space to get into why this is interesting. So I also like love those because they take certain effort, but they are so much more effective. When a brand is deciding that they have something, they've captured that lightning in the bottle. One of the things I've always wondered, and I'm sure you've had to advise on this at times, is there's this push-pull between going mainstream and then destroying the exclusivity of the brand and like the value proposition when someone has something. Because there's some intrinsic thing that if everybody has it, suddenly it's not as exciting. And it's kind of like the tail end of the brand. How do you advise on handling that? Well, that's only true of brands that are built on exclusivity. And there's a lot of brands that got built on exclusivity, but not all. I think the CrossFit community is an interesting example of patient zero for a lot of brands. And it's not like the CrossFit community is upset that now everyone is buying RX bars because they were the CrossFit protein bars before they became mainstream protein bars. It's more just like that community 
recognize its quality product because they're all about performance. And then it's a strong community itself. So they do a lot of word of mouth and referrals and all of that. And then everyone else is aspirationally looking up to what CrossFitters are doing. Because if you're an athlete or just like a performance oriented person, you want to do the same things, even if you're not doing CrossFit. And that's that social association. And then everyone else is like, well, if they're all doing it, it's kind of your example of a middle-aged dad in Boston who's not summiting Mount Everest anytime soon. But like, they want the good stuff. They can afford it. So why not? And so like, that's a one example of you can still be very true to your core community, but you keep expanding because of what that community actually allows you to do versus something like Supreme, which is much more exclusivity. And then the easier it is to get something, the less interesting it becomes to people. So different types of brand building. I am very partial to the ones that are not built on exclusivity alone because to your point, it's really hard to scale. So you learned a lot about consumer investing. You saw it at some of the biggest companies and advised some of the best brands and you decided to walk away from it all. So before we talk about what you're doing, I think I'd just be curious to kind of walk through that process as someone who went through something similar. It's a big decision to step away from the system. How did you arrive at the decision? How did it happen for you? I think it was actually the moment I realized my privilege that I could do anything I wanted to do because I now have the basics that I'm going to be okay. There's no more falling all the way down where I have to like move back to Poland and who knows what I'm going to do with myself. Like I am going to be okay between my skill set, my network, my education, my credentials, all of the signaling that you mentioned at the beginning, right? Like I'll be okay. So my ability to take risks is actually now higher than it was before. That was like the first thing. The downside case is not that bad. I had one professor in business school who always asked, what's the worst that can happen? And leaving bank capital was less about what type of upside I'm walking away from and more about what is the worst thing that can happen if I walk away from this? And I felt like that downside was not that bad. So that was kind of the first elements to just get comfortable with the idea of leaving it was very much driven by my interests and self-reflection around now that I got here and I'm in this advantage position, this position that a lot of people dream about, what do I actually want to do with it? What am I solving for? What kind of career, what kind of life do I want to lead and be happy? And I realized I just didn't want to be a partner in a private equity firm doing those types of transactions because while interesting, working with smart people, making a lot of money was not giving me the high. I love working with founders. I love thinking through what is next in the consumer evolution. Where is the world going? And I love freedom. And the moment you realize that money doesn't buy you freedom, money is an element of freedom. And a lot of things you're only free to do because you have money. But like once I realized that the ultimate thing I care about is freedom and just being able to do whatever I want to do, it was a pretty clear answer that I probably should work for myself. It's a really great point. I talk to people about this all the time, specifically in the finance industry, because it's a very highly paid industry. And there's this sometimes discontent or unhappiness of like, I did everything I was supposed to do. I made all this money. Why am I not happy? And usually it comes down to some level of freedom and autonomy over your time or what you're focusing on. So you decide to leave and you clearly have alluded to what you're most excited about doing. So tell us about the venture capital fund. Did you ever think about doing your own startup or was it always, I want to be an investor and I want to do an early stage VC? So I think I've realized early on, I didn't want to be an operator or a founder. Part of it is because I love too many different ideas and too many different subsectors and I just get energized by so many different things. The idea of working for just one company over an extended period of time just didn't sit very well with me. When I left Bank Capital, the very first exercise was The only criterion is early stage consumer. And I want to be on the cutting edge of what's next in consumer. No other restrictions or constraints. Blank sheet of paper and talk to probably tens, if not hundreds of people throughout that process, exploring operating roles, investing roles, early stage, late stage, consumer products, media, gaming, like what have you. And going through that experience, figuring out what I believe about the future of consumer what I believe about where my skill set is best served and what actually energizes me. I didn't want to go anywhere where I would feel like it was for a couple of years, but then I would move on. 
I've done the career step one of bank capital and private equity, and I wanted to go and my next thing to be something that I could do for a really long time. So that was the first part. And I realized I just didn't want to be an operator because I love the variety that investing offers. As far as starting my own fund, I really didn't want to start my own fund. I think being a solo GP is a miserable existence. And so in that way, I actually am a reluctant entrepreneur because I talked to all the funds, got a bunch of job offers, and I still felt like there is this market opportunity with my consumer expertise, but also web free expertise, and to really play as that consumer expert. And then to add to that, the one aspect that I think not a lot of founders get support with, because not a lot of funds offer it, which is kind of this go-to-market aspect. How do you do brand building? How do you do marketing strategy? How do you plan your go-to-market? And all of the aspects associated with that. So I felt this white space in the market that's niche, but really not that niche, actually. Especially now, I actually end up hearing from a lot of B2B kind of enterprise infra founders who want to talk about go-to-market. I was like, I'm not really an expert in your category. I'm happy to chat. But it was kind of sitting there for the taking. And I felt like I wouldn't give it justice if I didn't do it, especially kind of looking at the market and not seeing what I wanted to do elsewhere. So what was it that made you decide you wanted to not just be a consumer venture capitalist? Because you easily could have spun up a shop that did exactly what you said, just went earlier in the cycle, dealt with founders, you have this unique skill set, but you also merged it with Web3. So where did that come from? What is it about Web3 and brands that intrigues you so deeply? I always felt that consumer is so broad and thinking of it through the lens of just like products or tech or gaming or whatever is not how humans actually spend their time, money, and attention. And that's what I'm interested in, how people spend their time, money, and attention. And it has already shifted. 30 years ago, you only spent money on products and some experiences, and then you spend it on products and experiences, and then you spend it on products, experiences, and tech. And so like that portfolio of where your wallet actually goes has been changing over time. But we're still in the siloed world of like, you're a CPG investor, you're a tech investor. And yes, there are certain skill sets associated with each and the kind of expertise, like with anything. But I always taken the high level view of how people's spending evolves. That was the first part. I think on the Web3 specifically, as I'm going through this exercise, what is the future of consumer? I fell down the Web3 rabbit hole and became pretty apparent to me that that is the future of consumer. And quite frankly, that the future of Web3 has to be in consumer because consumer is how you get mainstream adoption. So it has to come through things that people actually care about and consumer culture. So that to me is very linked, those two aspects. Even something like DeFi, a lot of people don't think of DeFi as consumer. To me, DeFi is consumer because it's all about getting rid of the institutions and going through the retail investor directly and going to the retail aspects of finance without whole institutional layer around it. A lot of DeFi is not mainstream. That might be out of thesis for me for what I invest in Double Down because it's very specific thesis around mainstream adoption of Web3 through consumer culture. But I think a lot of the ethos behind Web3 is actually very consumer in nature, you know, power to the people, ownership to the people, upside to the people. So the consumer thinking being absent from the conversation most of the time is just really funny to me because none of these ideas are going to take hold if you don't know how to approach consumers, talk to consumers and get them comfortable and show the value prop, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of why I think consumer is important for Web3. And then as I was staring at everything else in consumer, I felt like a lot of the innovation cycles have played out and it was kind of more of the same. And the most interesting things that were unexplored were in Web3 around co-creation and shared ownership and decentralization and all of the little aspects of Web3, whether it's censorship resistance, like things like privacy, things like that, digital identity, I can keep going. A lot of the individual elements with a lot of open questions, but that's what's exciting because we get to innovate on those open questions around where consumer is going to go in this digital first era. One of the themes of your fund is you're looking for mainstream adoption, like you just said. I think it's a topic that's hotly debated by people that are in the space sometimes by people outside the space, but people inside the space specifically are always debating like, what would it take for mainstream adoption? Or where's mainstream adoption going to come from? And so I don't necessarily think it's an answerable question, but I think there's themes or myths that people kind of throw at you from time to time. So what do you think about the whole mainstream adoption of some of these 
newer technologies? I would say there is the threshold issues around adoption, and then there is the push force around mainstream adoption. And the threshold issues, right, security is one, regulation is another. To give an extreme example, if all of tokenization was illegal tomorrow, you're not going to get mainstream adoption. You're going to get a bunch of people VPNing and stuff, but you're not going to get mainstream adoption. There are these threshold issues around security, trust, regulation that have to be in place for that to happen. What happens then? And I believe that all adoption is fundamentally driven by motivation. People need to see a reason to adopt something. That's like sales 101, whether you're doing an individual sale or an enterprise sale, give people the reason to care. And I feel like in Web3, we're a lot of times coming at things from the perspective of interesting experimentation. Let's play with the tech. Let's figure out what it's going to do. And then inevitably, my first question to founders is always, why will anyone care? Who is your target customer and why will they care? And a lot of times it's a really hard question to answer, especially when I then follow up with, and what evidence do you have already that they actually do care? That is the necessary ingredient for mainstream adoption. People need to care. You need to give them reasons to care. And Axie is maybe a controversial example, given that kind of big boom, TBD, what's happening there long term. But Axie was like a very classic example of horrible onboarding experience. It was complicated, your classic Web3 wallet situation, transfer of assets, this and that. And you had a bunch of 70-year-olds in the Philippines just like doing that because they had a motivation because they were going to make more money doing that than doing anything else that they could be doing in their country, especially during the pandemic. That is a very strong motivation. I am going to make money and provide for my family. Obviously, a lot of products don't have that level of motivation. But like at the end of the day, every single consumer purchase is driven by some motivation. And so we just have to have these interesting use cases. I hate the word utility, but you know, interesting utility and not just interesting tech that is actually going to captivate users and get them over the hump. Easier UX, easier onboarding, of course, important, but like you can never onboard people just because something is simple. You onboard them because something is fascinating. And if it's also simple, great. If it's not, people will still get over that. What are you most excited on focusing on the companies that are working with existing brands or helping them abstract that away? You know, I think one of your hot takes was this idea of people will say, we have a UX problem. If we just fix that, everyone will use it. And I think you have some interesting thoughts there. But are you focused on the people trying to enable the large brands to come into the space, like the Nikes and the Starbucks? Or are you more interested on the crypto native development of trying to bring something to the masses? Where do you think it's going to come from or what's going to catch first? Well, so it's a funny question because when we look at the things that have driven adoption the most in 22, it was actually the traditional brands doing something in this space. The conversation in many ways in 2022 was driven by Reddit and Starbucks and Nike, kind of big brands taking a bold step into the ecosystem and doing something. When you look at the year prior, it was a lot of Web3 native ideas. It was NBA Top Shot and Sorare and Axie and all of that. So like, what is the answer? And I think the answer is both. And the part of what it takes is just building with the real use case in mind. And I think there is a reason why you also have a lot of traditional brands trying to do something and completely failing because it doesn't come from a position of how can we use this technology to serve our users and our business better. It comes from the position of oh my God, this thing is popping up, like let's do something, get some PR, blah, blah, blah. That is not a way to get adoption. At the same time, if I had to pick between the two, especially from an investment perspective, it's really hard for me to invest behind traditional brands doing something in the space because I quite frankly don't think the corporate world is ready for building the right things for the long term. It takes such different organizational structure, talent, culture, It's not just an infrastructure question, although infrastructure is certainly part of it. A lot of it is actually the soft underbelly of how things actually get done. And you can't change that overnight, especially for companies with 10, 20,000 employees. So I think about it as what happened with e-commerce. We had a bunch of traditional retail companies experimenting with e-commerce, mostly failing. And then the actual e-commerce got driven by e-commerce first brands and concepts that build from ground up with the technology and culture and talent to show what's possible. And then 
now we're kind of seeing the tail end of that. Now, Target is probably the best DTC e-commerce operator on the brand space because they can combine the retail experience and the online experience and brand creation internally. Like they don't need to acquire brands anymore, but they used to because they were acquiring certain set of capabilities and employees and culture and all of that. And so I think the same thing will happen with Web3, where we will have these very Web3 native businesses. They're going to do a lot of experimentation, a lot of trial and error, and come up with the models that work. And whether it's going to be on a commerce or media or gaming or sports or what have you, but there are going to be these winners. And then your traditional brands and companies in those categories are going to borrow the best practices or acquire them like Nike did with Artifact and go from there. So eventually you need the reach of the traditional companies because it's really hard to get that reach as a Web3 native brand. But all of the actual interesting innovation on the use case side, I think is going to come natively. So with that framing, how do you think about the gestational period of the Web3 company versus how you started when you talked about the gestational period of a large brand really building quality and not using tricks to get that ramp? It's a funny thing to talk about gestation period in a category that is four years old. I mean, let's be real, like the consumer dimension of Web3 in how we typically talk about consumer, remove the DeFi aspect of it. Bitcoin is consumer, but let's not talk about that. The consumer dimension basically started with CryptoKitties, more or less, and then really didn't pop off until, what, last two, three years? So there isn't enough time for anyone to have gestation periods. It just hasn't happened yet. But you see different teams working on different cadences. One of the hardest things a lot of Web3 companies have, and NFT projects have in particular, is there is this culture of now in the Web3 native customer. Everyone wants their rewards now. Everyone wants the floor to go up now. Everyone wants their benefit now. And building valuable things takes time. When you take that lens, different people have taken different views. Different teams have taken different views on how to build and how to develop the brand, how to develop the product, how to develop experience, how to develop the community. But it's still too early to tell who's actually is doing it right and who are kind of the early winners who are going to go away. But the gestation period is a funny concept because there's a separate question here, which is, will these companies have fundamentally different gestation period profile than your traditional brands? Is there something inherent to Web3 that means it's going to be a shorter development period? Or is it just kind of follow the same path? I would argue that technology changes, but human nature doesn't. So there is a certain element of comfort and trust and storytelling that you have to do. So we will see kind of what happens there on that end. I think the biggest problem I see is this short-termism, though. There's very few teams that are taking the 5, 10, 15-year horizon when thinking about what they're building. And that's going to be necessary to have a conversation about long-standing brands in the space. What are you seeing in the pitches as a VC who gets to get that deal flow and look at the Web3 brands? Do people feel like they had 22 and they could catch fire and maybe they raised a bunch of money so now they can build something? Or what are you seeing today? So one thing I want to be clear, when we talk brands, I mean literally any company because everything is a brand. You are a brand and I are a brand. People are brands the same way corporations are people, I guess. But at the end of the day, everything is a brand. If you are consumer facing, you're a brand. Well, I see in pitches a lot right now, I actually feel like 80-20, what I'm seeing right now, falls into one of two buckets. It's either people who are dumbing down the technology too much for the general user. When you go through the exercise of trying to remove all the complexity and all the things and make it as easily digestible by the general user as possible, you're left with not a lot of innovation and probably something that can be easily executed without Web3. Why are we even bothering? That's the mindset that a lot of people have because that's where the general user is today. But like, you shouldn't be building for where the general user is today. It's where they're going to be three, four, five years from now. On the other side of it, I see a lot of pitches of people building for the Web3 native customer and Web3 native customer only. I don't think anyone wants to be a niche subculture company. You want to build a longstanding company. So you have to think about How do you expand from that core? And how do you build for a bigger, bigger set of people? There is this funny thing where 10,000 users is like a big achievement in Web3. 10,000 users in non-Web3 is nothing. You have to think about how you're going to get to 100,000 and a million and 10 million. 
that's where the real scale and success comes from. And I think a lot of founders are just not thinking through that lens. Sure, you can build for a smaller target audience, but just very deeply and get a lot of dollars from them. But I would say those are more frequently than not exceptions or the right strategy, but that niche is actually much larger than how people are crafting it today. That's the primary thing I see in the market. And then the other interesting thing is people are still trying not to raise. If you raise money before and you don't have to raise, you're really trying not to raise right now. Maybe that changes in the second half of 23. I generally advise founders that they should not plan on anything getting better in 23 for any number of reasons. So hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And I don't know what the worst necessarily here is, but I wouldn't expect a big recovery until 24. The point you made at the first part of the answer about how we need to abstract it away and strip it all away, it's something people should go back and listen to because it might sound nuanced, but it's so true that people say, oh, like security is such a big deal and I don't want to know all these passwords or seed phrases. It's like, to your point, the problem was ownership and having accountability and wanting to own your own assets. So you can't both want to own your own assets and then say, but I really love Apple to store my password for me. You can't have it both ways. And I think that it's one of the strongest arguments when I like when people say, I have this idea and why do you need to use this technology? Don't just use it for the sake of it. Don't just experiment or toy around. There's nothing wrong with that. But when you're actually solving a problem, kind of the lens you look through it, I always like to say, like, do you actually need this? Or are you just trying to slap NFTs and Web3 on it because 12 months ago, you could raise a huge valuation. I think all those founders should just go and build something in AI right now. If you're just slapping Web3 to build in Web3, just slap AI and build in AI. I'm sure they are. The fund is backed by ridiculous people. So you have the owner of the Celtics. You've got Chris Dixon and Mark Andreessen personally, Alexis Ohanian, Matt Huang, Fred Estram. The list is kind of crazy. And we've talked about your network. Some of those people are Web3 or crypto-focused. Some of them are not. Paris Hilton or other people. But I'm curious, your network is so diverse and fascinating. And they're not all crypto degens or have an idea of what you're talking about. How do the people that have built really powerful brands but are still skeptical, like what are some of the best questions that you get asked? Or what are the things that they're most focused on? I think just this question of why do you need this technology? And it has been so helpful for me to have so many of those conversations. When I went to market to fundraise, I knew that I wanted to have a lot of great crypto people because it's great for me to work with them, learn from them, share companies, etc. But also to have this great base of people in music and fashion and commerce and gaming and every aspect of consumer you can imagine, because I want to go back to those people when I'm diligencing something and have a conversation about do the assumptions around the disruption in this industry make sense? Does this technology make sense for your target customer? It's been very helpful to go through this process with a lot of non-crypto people, non-Web3 people who might be curious, might be skeptical, but actually are asking all the right questions about why does this matter? And why is it interesting? And why will people care? I think that intellectual honesty around that is something that I want to keep front and center always because it's very easy to drink the Kool-Aid of Web3 and get excited about the Web3 technology and what we are able to build. But if you build it, people will probably not come unless you give them reason to come. You closed the fund maybe on the craziest week of crypto history. You closed on November 2nd and FTX filed for bankruptcy on like November 8th or 9th. I have to imagine you felt like a roller coaster high of I've done it, I raised my fund. And then this immediately like, holy shit, now there's a fire we've got to answer to. Like, what was that emotional roller coaster like? First of all, I felt like a genius because I was initially planning on delaying the close November 9th. So clearly I'm a brilliant go-to-market person. I feel like I've squeezed in my announcement in the slowest news week of all time, basically on crypto Twitter and everything. It was funny to lack out like that. I think the FTX drama and all of the fallout associated with that, on the one hand, it's weird to have your first LP update be like, commentary on the market. And it's all pretty bad stuff. But at the same time, just regrounding into this is the first principles of why Web3 is interesting and kind of the short-term volatility is not part of it. And by the way, a lot of FTX's issues had nothing to do with crypto and everything to do with fraud. We didn't kill the entire 
accounting industry and oil and gas industry because Enron happened. It was just like a very specific thing that happened. I keep that buff in the back of my head and bring it to LPs to one bad actor. But the issue was not even associated with the crypto aspects themselves. I think about the impact a lot because I'm investing in mainstream adoption of Web3. And right now, Web3 and crypto has a pretty bad reputation. So what does that mean? On one hand, that is dominating the conversation. And there was already so much conversation around crypto being scams and criminals and this and that. At the same time, if you give people things that they get excited about, they don't really care. So again, what is the real use case? Like NBA Top Shot gave a lot of people a lot of excitement. A lot of early NBA Top Shot users were not even crypto people. They were not NFT people. So many people's NFT journeys started with NBA Top Shot because it was this exciting new thing that Dapper built and communities formed around and took off from there. I always think of that. At the end of the day, consumers are fickle. And that can be a very bad thing when you're trying to underwrite an investment. But it can also be a very good thing because the memory is short. And if something interesting comes up, people just on board to this new, interesting and exciting thing. I think the regulation is going to be an interesting aspect because, again, I think the issues associated with FTX were not crypto specific, but there's a lot of people with egg on their faces about the situation. I think a lot about what does that mean from that standpoint, because I believe regulation is so intrinsically tied to people's comfort with the technology. I think the best outcome we can have is a new regulatory body that actually takes into account how unique crypto and tokenization is and regulates from there, as opposed to try to jam it into a securities law that itself needs to be updated for the modern era and certainly is not equipped to handle the nuances that are present in tokens and cryptocurrencies. You see with multiple brands where they get extreme excitement and adoption out of nowhere. Like they've been working for years. They've got this diehard fan base, but nobody's noticed. And then suddenly mass adoption happens and you go through this exponential curve. And I think there's an inherent conflict I see in Web3 of You've got a small group of loud users that might own a large portion of whatever the underlying asset is. And then you're thinking about the casual user and how to bring them in. And so there's usually this conflict between these psycho early adopter type folks, DGENs, whatever name you want to call them. And then the average person is trying to figure it out. And I think as a company, serving those two disparate universes is very hard. So I'd be curious to get the take from your lens is the mainstream adoption, how you handle these early adopters that might have got you there going and gave you that initial boost and how you bring on more people and keep both camps happy when they might have different needs. They certainly have different needs. Early adopter is usually very Web3 native and your early adopter is usually a relatively small group of people. I mean, let's just look at the numbers. Like I think 90% plus of crypto buyers are men. If you're building for the general market, like that's not going to be the case in the long run. Hello. So I think the first part is just recognizing you have a problem, recognizing that your customer base today cannot be the only customer base that you have two, three, five years from now. The second element is you cannot be hostage to your early adopter, but you also cannot ignore your early adopter. And that's the balance that you're really talking about. And I see it all the time where teams are so scared of what will the Discord say and how will the Discord react. Discord cannot be your entire audience that you are thinking about. You have to do right by the community. You have to be very thoughtful about the community, but you cannot be hostage to your community. And there is like a very fine balance between those two approaches. As you think about expanding your user base, your community, your growth, it's starting from the position of Who are we? What is our value? What is the authenticity to this specific company that made this early adopter resonate? And how do we get other people excited about this thing? I think that's where the real growth comes when you're staying authentic to what is the value proposition that you have. And then more and more people that can vibe with that value proposition is probably the best way to describe it. Because the people that might be your perfect target customer from profile, know nothing about Web3 today. You have to figure out how to reach them because otherwise you're going to be stuck in this very small pool of people who are in Web3 today and you will not be able to grow. That makes a lot of sense. 
So from the girl in Pennsylvania who didn't have the words to express her opinion to the moniker queen of Twitter hot takes, what are your current hot takes on the market? Probably the big hot take I have right now is that a lot of teams are shooting themselves in the foot by trying to avoid the down rat at all costs. Teams that raised money before are desperately trying to either maintain the perception of at least a flat round while putting a lot of structure behind it that is just not a great idea in my mind, or just trying to raise at terms that are just not market anymore. And I think it's like when you're so stuck with this idea, we can't have a down round, you are going to run through a process, burn through investors, not get anywhere and have to restart while you've already tainted your process, if you will. And I think right now, quite frankly, we're in a position where you have to survive to thrive. And so whatever it takes to survive, even if it means taking a down round, just to make sure that you have enough in the balance sheet to be able to execute and make it through the current market environment and build what you need to build and emerge on the other side, able to take on the world. What's it like on the other side? How excited are LPs to write checks to capital they committed? So is there also a holdback from, I think there's been this topics come up that you have a bunch of entrepreneurs that raise money and they're afraid of down rounds. And then you have a bunch of VC dry powder, quote unquote, but maybe you can help people understand capital committed versus actually called capital. What's it like on the other side of how LPs are responding to getting their capital called right now? Yeah, I'm in a very fortunate position where most of my LP base is high net worth individuals, some family offices, not a lot of institutional capital, which means there's a lot more flexibility that people have. And it might not be so happy about getting a capital call, but they don't have restrictions around the capital calls versus for a lot of institutional LPs, you're committed to specific funds that are running a specific strategy. But now you're also staring at report, if you will, and are not too excited about wiring that money because it really doesn't meet how your portfolio should be balanced and how you think about it. That's really hard. At the same time, most of those LPs, if they already played in Web3, probably are in kind of your premier top-notch funds. No one ever wants to lose access to the premier top-notch funds and reneging on your LP commitment is one way of doing that. I do not have an insight into how people are ultimately kind of playing this as far as actually meeting their commitments, but I wouldn't be surprised if they actually end up doing that just by the incentives associated with the whole system. At the same time, it depends a little bit of who the LP is because you had plenty of LPs who committed to funds in 2022, 2021, very excited about the hype around Web3 and the hype went away and now they're like, oh shit. And then you have a lot of other LPs who actually were like very hesitant about the 22-21 hype cycle and were almost reluctantly doing it because they didn't want to miss out. And now they're excited. They're like, wait a second, this category still probably has potential, but now valuations are lower, there's less competition, the quality of the deals should theoretically be higher, TBD if that actually plays out. I think it depends a little bit of like why people did what they did with their capital that makes a difference here too. And so what are you looking for besides deals that are at better valuations? When you're evaluating founders, what are some of the things across your current portfolio or stuff you're looking for that excites you? The starting point is just why is it Web3? How is this uniquely enabled by Web3? And then can it be done differently? And sometimes the answer is like, yes, it can be done differently without Web3, but it will be clunky or not as robust or this and that. It doesn't mean, oh my God, this couldn't be done before. But it's just, is there an actual reason for... Web3 technology here, because Web3 right now means friction, and you have to counteract that friction by building something truly unique and special and valuable to people. Second thing is, I love founding teams that kind of combine that technical expertise with company building, organizational building expertise. I think a lot of teams early on came from a cool technology angle and had no idea how to build a company. I love, especially for the market conditions that we have today, I love having founding teams that been there, done that. doesn't have to be their previous startup that they started. It might have just been that they were employees somewhere, but they saw what it takes to build an organization and to build something that lasts and can execute, et cetera. The third aspect of it is business model. There's a lot of interesting innovation on the product side, but if no one's going to pay for it, if you don't have a sustainable business model, because someone can pay for it today, but if there is no sustainability to that revenue, that also doesn't bode well for the company. 
I think a lot about industry structures, why certain industries work the way they work, where does the value accrue, how does the specific startup get to play within the industry that's actually playing and not on the Web3 side, but on the traditional business consumer side and how they can extract value and how they can monetize and how can they make it sustainable and long-term. Because at the end of the day, I'm not investing for the markups of my portfolio. I'm investing for the exit outcomes. You need to be a sustainable company. I have path to being one in order for that exit to happen. I think a lot of teams just don't take that long-term view again. Why should a founder not pick you as an investor? If you do not like direct and candid feedback, because that's how I work with all my founders, like I give it to them straight. I never try to be mean, but I'm also not going to sugarcoat things. I'm here to be your partner and give it to you straight and brainstorm and think through stuff. If that working style is not right for you, it also means like I'm not the right investor for you. And that's totally fine. Max, I always love talking to you. I think you're one of the most interesting people I've encountered in the space. I remember when we first met and I was at this table and I told you about these random board apes. Like, I own some and I think we instantly hit it off. We end these podcasts the same question. What are you most excited to build? Maybe at Double Down or invested over the next six months? And then same question, but over the next six years. On the six months, I think it's a little overused, but I like to think from first principles. And so now sitting with a new fund and what is a relatively slow market compared to a year ago, I'm thinking a lot about from Grand App, what will a great venture firm in this category look like? And what are the things that are genuinely valuable to founders? And what are the things that no one else is doing? I position the entire fund around go to market and The mission is very much to be the partner of choice for Web3 founders as far as go-to-market marketing and branding goes. I think through that, how can I deliver on that? How can I make sure that that's the case for the long term? And also thinking through, okay, what else is there that the founders would really like? Because I think we, in the venture industry, talk a lot about, you know, being value-add and services and portfolio teams and this and that. But like, I'm surprised how few people actually ask founders, like, what do they care about and what they want? and who their most valuable investors are and why. And I'm kind of excited to do a lot of work around this and started on some of it, but thinking through that lens, like how can I generally make Double Down to be the partner of choice for founders building this space, especially as their go-to-market investor. And the longer term, I could give the Double Down answer and I could give you the general market answer. I think on the Double Down side, I just... I'm here for the long term. I always knew that if I was going to do a fund reluctantly, it was not to do a fund, it was to build a firm. And I'm very excited to like build a firm in this category and to build it with that customer-centric view in mind, which means both the general customer and how the consumer world operates, but also my specific customer, which is the founders in this category. I think in the market overall, I'm just excited for the like web swing native companies building at this unique intersection of general consumer and web native consumer. If you build something that is generally interesting to both segments, you're probably onto something. Max, thank you so much for the time today. It's been fun. Thanks so much for having me. It's always fun to jam. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 